This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. Classes may be over for this academic year, but we know students of color and low-income families were more likely to struggle with virtual learning. A Pew Research survey shines a new light on those struggles, showing the switch between virtual and in-class learning was especially challenging for teens. Heather Kelly is a tech reporter for The Washington Post. Welcome back to Reset, Heather. Hello, thanks for having me. So the last couple of years showed that remote learning worked for some and not so much for others, right? So tell us who was surveyed in this report, first of all, and what did it specifically ask about? Sure. So the Pew Research Center um, is is one of the more, like one of the larger institutions that really looks at kids and the internet. And what's interesting about this is, you know, we're entering year three of the pandemic and we've had lots of fears about what would happen and how it would impact different kids differently. And this is one of the first studies to really start asking how did this impact you? And so they talked to like a 1,300-ish pairs of teens, and then they also talked to the parents of those teens to kind of get a picture of what's going on. What did the survey show for kids across all backgrounds and, and family family income levels? So there were some like kind of broader trends that were, were sort of for all kids. One, and I think this is unlike a lot of us that work in offices, kids want to be in school in person. Um, for, for the most part, I think 70% of white teens and 64% of Hispanic teens were like, yeah, we want to go back to full-time in-person school after this is over. Um, and then this is also where we see some of the first differences because uh, it, it dropped significantly down to 51% yeah. of black teens wanting to go back to full-time school in person. Yeah, that sounds about right. My kids were saying the same thing. We want to go back. We want to see our friends. It's more of a social thing, I think, for kids than, than you know, I want to go back to my cubicle and, and type on right. a computer. And so I, can, I completely get I want that. to turn in homework um, every day. Yeah. Um, speaking of homework, what's the homework gap? W- which students were specifically struggling with that? So the homework gap is it's about the kids who maybe aren't able to complete assignments that are supposed to be finished after school because they just don't they don't have Internet connection. They don't have fast enough cell service. They don't have computers and they even don't have smartphones at home sometimes. Uh, so about 22 percent of students, this number kind of blew my mind, are finishing their homework at home on smartphones. Like they're writing their papers and, and filing wow. their homework from phones because that's the only technology they really have that's readily available. They don't have they don't have computers there. Um, and then 12 percent sometimes can't even finish it at all because they might not even have that or they don't they don't have, you know, an internet connection or a data plan. Uh, and this did impact lower income students more uh, people living in a, a household of making, say, I think, thirty thousand dollars or less a year. Yeah. Talk a bit more about that. Students with lower family income, they really struggled the most here. Why? They did. And I think a lot of it was we we switched to relying on technology for a good part of the early pandemic. Yeah. Um, and and while a lot of schools did give out computers, that didn't always mean that you would have Internet. There was a famous kind of viral uh, press photo that went around early on of kids sitting outside of a fast food restaurant trying to do remote learning because that's where they had to get Internet. Um, and I think we're sort of seeing seeing the longer term impacts of that of that inequality. And then there's also like you know technology literacy. You can give a kid a Chromebook, but if they're young and they don't really know how it works, you're really relying on the family to have the know how of how to use that and walk them through that and have that time. So that's another area that really impacted them. Yeah, or if they're anything like the Chromebooks we had, they were just faulty. <laughs> they they just <laughs> didn't work. They just didn't work half the time. Uh, the survey also looked at the impact of. Um, Isolation, right, on on teen relationships. What did you find there? So this, I mean, this is also a big fear, like kids weren't going to see their friends. Um, And I I actually found this one to be sort of touching. First of all, about half of the teens they spoke to were as close or closer to the parents, 
which is to be expected when you're locked in a home with them for yeah. months on end. Mm-hmm. Um, and then just a little bit less than that, that they had actually managed to maintain close relationships with their friends. Uh, where the relationships really fell off was that second tier, like uh, schoolmates, teachers, people who they weren't super close to before. Uh, those were really hard to maintain remotely. And so they reported uh, kind of losing touch with those people or, or just not being in, in as close of a contact with them. And then with friends, what I've kind of found talking to teams this whole time is they were using technology to stay in touch. They're playing video games and they're chatting on Discord. Um, and so that's a place where the technology really did help them out. Did teens across all demographics score pretty evenly here? Uh, no, absolutely not. Uh, the, the white teens and the teens from higher income households were much more likely to be satisfied with remote learning um, and to not feel like they, they were being left behind. And, and I think it's really, you know, we can't really quantify yet, you know, are you not learning as much? So it's really asking them their gut feeling. Do you feel like you're being left behind? And about three in 10 Hispanic teens said they were extremely or very worried that they have fallen behind in school specifically because of the pandemic. Um, and mm-hmm. the same was, it was 19% of black teens and only 11% of white teens. Uh, so you did see some big difference there in, in fear of falling behind just because, you know, yeah. school hasn't been the same for years. Sure hasn't. Uh, the survey also asked kids and parents how they felt about the, the schooling options during the pandemic. So in-person, virtual, and hybrid. What responses did you get overall? And, and were the responses between the kids and the parents, were they similar or did they vary? You know, they were they were mostly pretty close. I think was it, 65% of teens said they definitely want it fully in person. Um, and only 9% want to have completely online schooling. Uh, I I also wonder if that number would have been true before, you know, any kids that are dealing with bullying or issues fitting in. I feel like online schooling would have always looked like a better option. Um, And 18 percent kind of wanted a mix of both online and in-person instruction, which is interesting. And I don't think that was as common of an option before the pandemic. And now maybe it is for those kids. Yeah. And, And, you know, as we said, you know, teens have definitely used more technology this year than, I mean, they've likely ever done before in school. I'm thinking about all the Absolutely. ads. Yeah, I'm thinking about all the ads too, Heather, that I see on some of the apps that I use. What kind of impact might that have on kids that young? Advertisements? Yeah. Well, so what's interesting is I feel like ads are sort of the public facing part of a much larger problem. Um, those apps are also collecting data on these kids, um, often without consent or anybody's knowledge, mm-hmm. and then they're selling that to ad networks. And so by letting our kids get online so much younger, um, and there was this panic right early on, like, what's going to keep you busy while I do my job? Here, have some coloring apps is, is what a colleague of mine is, is found are kind of sketchy, no pun intended. Mm. Um, and, and we're just sort of putting them on these apps and we're not able to vet them. And they're creating sort of these shadow profiles of our children. They're collecting data um, and they're having these profiles created much younger than they might have otherwise. Heather Kelly is a tech reporter for The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Heather. Sure thing. Thank you. We'll turn now to Nicole Marwell, who's associate professor at the University of Chicago and a principal investigator at the university's Internet Equity Initiative. Now, she's been studying Internet disparities in neighborhoods across Chicago. Hi, Nicole. Hi. How are you doing, Sasha? Doing well. Doing well. Thanks for joining here. You've been listening along to uh, my conversation with Heather there. I know that we talked to you about a month ago about your analysis about Internet connectivity here in Chicago. Can you just remind our listeners what you found there? 
Sure. Uh, so we use data from the pre-pandemic time um, from the U.S. Census to look at the uh, percentage of households in each of the 77 Chicago community areas that are connected to Internet. And what we found was that there is, are unsurprisingly, very large disparities across neighborhoods in terms of the percentage of households that are connected to the Internet. And again, I want to remind everyone, this is data from before the pandemic. And so, you know, there's been a number of things done to address that since then. And so maybe if we have time, we can remind folks of that as well. But we did see that, you know, uh, in neighborhoods like Burnside, Englewood, West Englewood, we had under 60% of households in those neighborhoods connected to the internet compared to neighborhoods like Lincoln Park or Lincoln Square or Lakeview, where we had upwards of 90% of households connected. So you do see we have a very strong gap uh, between neighborhoods in terms of their uh, level of of Mm -hmm. internet connectivity. And as you talk about these neighborhoods, that that faced the lowest internet connection levels and the highest. Did your analysis take note of the the primary demographics there? Yeah, there's clearly, you know, as your previous guest pointed out, there's a clearly very strong relationship between income and internet connectivity. In other words, if you have higher income, you're much more likely to be connected to the internet. If you have lower income, you're much less likely to be connected to the internet. So among those neighborhoods where um, connectivity rates were closer to 60%, um, you've got folks who are not earning more than you know forty thousand dollars a year in the median out income for that neighborhood. Whereas if you look at the neighborhoods that have connectivity rates over ninety percent, those neighbor the median income in those neighborhoods is above a hundred thousand dollars a year. So uh, obviously we've all seen an internet bill. We know how expensive it is. We know that the United States has internet connection fees that are among the highest mm-hmm. in the developed nations of the world. World. And so that affordability issue uh, is a really critical one for folks in Chicago and in cities all across the country. The Internet Equity Initiative out of UChicago, uh, it looked at some solutions, especially ones that might help students. So can you talk about what you suggest there, Nicole? Well, I would say the solutions aren't exactly ours. Many of your listeners may be familiar with the Chicago Connected program, which was an initiative that the Chicago Public Schools and the Mayor's Office and Kids First Chicago launched in the summer following the onset of the pandemic. And that program was really very successful in getting uh, free internet connectivity to households across the city where there were Chicago public school students. So we really made a a large leap in getting students uh, in Chicago public schools connected to the internet through that um, free program. Uh, Looking forward, um, your listeners may also know that the uh, federal government has created its affordable connectivity program, which also provides a subsidy to households to pay for a low-cost internet connection. So it is possible through that federal program to, it's a little more complicated than Chicago Connected, but uh, that's a resource that, you know, hopefully you can point your listeners towards as well. Well, let's talk about that complication. What are some challenges for these solutions? 
Well, one of the great things about the Chicago Connected program is that it made it really, really easy for eligible households to connect to the internet. They basically had a phone number they had to call and a code that they gave, and that was all they needed to do to get the internet turned on in their house. Uh, we call that a very low administrative burden. It puts a low burden on the family to be able to actually go from, hey, here's a subsidy to, oh, I've got my internet working. The Affordable Connectivity Program has a lot bigger administrative burden. You have to sort of navigate between finding a plan from an internet service provider and then, you know, proving your eligibility for the subsidy and then putting those two things together. So hopefully, you know, folks will be able to figure out how to do that. And hopefully um, the city of Chicago is going to be trying to figure out ways to help folks navigate that burden. But that really is a great opportunity for folks. And so I hope that they won't be uh, dissuaded too much by the burden that unfortunately that federal program has that's bigger than the one that Chicago Connected um, created. Yeah. And, and because we can't say it too much, Nicole, remind us again, the benefits of more widespread internet access. Yes. Well, your previous guest talked about the homework gap, and that's certainly something that continues. Uh, every kid in school needs to be able to do their homework using the resources of the internet. Uh, obviously, you know, that's a really important thing for kids to be able to improve their learning. Anyone who um, has experienced using a telehealth uh, uh, application during the pandemic, it's much easier to see your doctor now. You've, you just log on. You have that visit. You don't have to sit in the waiting room, travel to the, the facility, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, to improve your health and monitor your health, the internet is really critical. If you're looking for work, if you want to bank online, if you want to pay bills online, all those things may, are made easier by the internet. But of course, as you're previous guests also mentioned, it's really critical that folks have good digital literacy, that they know how to protect their personal information online. And that that's an area that there's a little bit of money in that federal bill. But I think we're going to need a lot more attention to those questions moving forward. And so I hope that there will be um, additional support for organizations who are working on that issue and helping families understand how to protect their personal information online as they use the internet more and more. Nicole Marwell is an associate professor at UChicago and a principal investigator at the Internet Equity Initiative. Thank you for joining us, Nicole. Thanks very much for having me. Want more context on the top issues of the day? Find the podcast, WBEZ's Reset, wherever you listen.